Ending the global war on drugs. I'm David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Cato Institute, and it's my honor to uh, introduce and moderate our last panel before the presidential address. If there are people out in the hallway, I alert them that we are now starting uh, for our final panel here. In 1988, I wrote an article titled, Let's Quit the Drug War in the New York Times, and it seemed to come at the beginning of a real burgeoning national debate on the advisability of the war on drugs. In just a year or so around that time, the Economist endorsed legalization, Mayor Schmoke gave an important speech to the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Congress held hearings on decriminalization, Bill Bennett became drug czar and started firing back, and that helped the debate along. And then, somehow, as always seems to happen in Washington, the tyranny of the status quo reasserted itself, and the debate receded, and drug arrests went back over a million a year and kept on rising ever since. But a few of us think that the policy of prohibition failed in the 1920s, it failed in the 1980s, and it is failing today. In the 1980s, it was the soaring murder rate in the nation's capital that really drove a lot of the interest in policy alternatives. In this decade, I think it is the even more appalling rate of murder across our southern border that has caused so many leading citizens all over the Americas to call for change. So I'm glad we've been able to arrange this tremendous conference today. I'm really looking forward to President Cardozo's remarks in an hour, but right now it's my honor to introduce this panel on alternatives to prohibition. I'm going to introduce our three distinguished speakers and then turn the podium over to them in order that they will speak. Glenn Greenwald is a former constitutional and civil rights litigator and is the author of two New York Times best-selling books on the Bush administration's executive power and foreign policy abuses. His just-released book, With Liberty and Justice for Some, is an indictment of what he sees as America's two-tiered system of justice. He has a very popular blog column at Salon.com. And of course, we at Cato know him best for his study, Drug Decriminalization in Portugal, which examined the little known success of drug policy reform in that country. Next to him, Jefferson Fish is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at St. John's University in New York. He previously served as Chair of the Department of Psychology and as Director of the PhD Program in Clinical Psychology. His books include How to Legalize Drugs and Drugs and Society, and in his work he has tried to distinguish between the effects of drugs and the effects of drug prohibition. And finally, Ethan Nadelman was the best scholar in drug policy reform, and then he became the best intellectual entrepreneur in the field of drug policy reform. After getting three degrees from Harvard, he taught at Princeton, and he wrote about drug policy for publications ranging from science and foreign affairs to American Heritage and National Review. Today, he is the founder and executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, the leading organization in the United States promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. Please welcome Glenn Greenwald.
Good afternoon, and, and thanks for coming, and thanks so much to Cato for organizing such an outstanding drug policy conference. The reason that I'm included in discussions like this, even though I haven't had a huge amount of experience previously in, in writing about drug policy, is because Cato in 2008 asked me, um, knowing that because I live in Brazil, I, I'm a speaker of Portuguese and, and had an interest in the topic, to go to Portugal and to do field research to find out what has happened in Portugal since 2000 when that nation decriminalized all drugs. And the essence of that story is that throughout the 1990s, Portugal had extraordinary difficulties managing their drug problems in almost every category. They were near last or dead last when compared to other EU states in terms of drug usage, addiction, and related pathologies like sexually transmitted diseases, drug-caused uh, deaths, um, and, and, and other problems. And they found that the more they criminalized the problem, the worse the problems became. And sort of out of desperation, they asked a commission of apolitical experts to answer only one question. And that question is, what could the Portuguese government do to best manage their out-of-control drug problems? And after studying that question for 18 months, the commission unanimously concluded that the optimal course of action would be decriminalization. And it was only because it was apolitical and had the endorsement of this panel of experts did the Portuguese political class feel comfortable embracing this approach. And what's fascinating about it is that at the time that they did it, it was extraordinarily controversial. Portugal was a quite conservative country. The Catholic Church continues to play a significant role in their political life. They continue to outlaw abortion. And so you can imagine it was quite controversial at the time. And yet a decade later, there is almost no controversy over this topic. The consensus of the political class is that decriminalization has been a, an astounding success. And it's not hard to see why. If you look at the data that I compiled for the Cato Institute in 2009, what you find is that in almost every metric, Portugal now leads the EU or is near the top in terms of managing their drug problems. In certain key demographic cases, usage as an absolute amount has actually decreased even at a time when usage rates across the continent have skyrocketed. So I won't spend too much time talking about that data. You can look at it online in the 2009 report that I prepared. I'm working now on an update, and I'm almost finished with an update, talking about what has changed since that report was first published. And what has really changed predominantly is the nature of the debate. The debate has become much more permissive. You have leading dignitaries around the world, such as President Cardoza and many others, who are much more receptive to approaching this topic in a more rational and constructive way. And what you find is that as a result of the work the Cato Institute did, the example of Portugal, which is really the only real hardcore empirical case that we have had thus far about what happens when a nation decriminalizes, has, has taken on a sizable and significant role in that debate, even though when we first worked on the paper, very few people, including drug policy experts, had even been aware that Portugal had decriminalized drugs almost a decade ago. So I just want to spend my time briefly summarizing the reasons why it's been such a success. Because I think when you tell even like-minded people sympathetic to the anti-prohibitionist argument that when you decriminalize drug use, usage does not increase significantly and it can even decrease, there's just some a sense that that's counterintuitive. It's difficult to understand why that would be.
So I just want to identify the three reasons that if you talk to drug policymakers in Portugal and look at the data, I think you'll see are the reasons why that has taken place and why that would take place in any country that decriminalized. The first one is the most difficult to convey. It's a very subtle reason, but it's also probably the most significant. And that is that when you transform yourself from a government that criminalizes your citizenry into one that no longer does that over drug use, you eliminate a wall of fear that exists between the population and the government that prevents meaningful education programs and other types of activities designed to help people get off addiction or to minimize the harms of drugs. So if you talk to policymakers in Portugal, what they'll tell you is that prior to 2000, it was almost impossible for them to go into poor communities or communities racked by drugs and convey meaningful educative messages because the population feared the government and was alienated from it and looked at it as the enemy. And you see comments like that all the time in the United States, the 34-year uh, police veteran uh, in Seattle who has taken on the cause of drug decriminalization in the United States will say that in his police career, he, he could see that communities of color, that young people and others viewed the police as the enemy and the state as the enemy because they went into those communities to arrest people and put them into prison, not to help. And therefore, any messages that they had, any programs they offered were tuned out and were rendered ineffective. And that's what Portuguese drug policymakers will say as well, that throughout the 1990s, nothing they did was of any efficacy because they were viewed as jailers, there to imprison and to criminalize. And now the world is completely different. Now they can go into these communities and they are no longer feared, they are welcome. So they can offer messages to youth and to their parents, they can offer counseling programs. It has fundamentally changed the relationship between the government and the citizenry from one of fear to one that is much more constructive. And that enables the government, if you're somebody who believes that the government should be discouraging drug use, it enables the government to communicate to the citizenry much more effectively why certain drug usages, forms of drug usage are so dangerous and how those dangers can be minimized. That's a huge and significant change that has taken place in Portugal that is somewhat subtle but of extreme significance. The second reason why Portugal has had such success as a result of decriminalization, and this one is somewhat more obvious, is that it has freed up extreme amounts of resources. So because Portugal is no longer a country that spends enormous amounts of money imprisoning their citizens, indicting them, arresting them, prosecuting them, and then incarcerating them, instead that money is now freed up for things that are much more effective in terms of addressing the drug problem and related pathology. So they have money to spend on things like counseling programs or methadone clinics or programs to distribute clean needles or condoms or other uh, aids that can help people reduce the harms that come from drug use. And that particularly resonates, I think, both as a substantive matter and a political question in the United States because we are now in what everybody agrees is an age of extreme austerity. In fact, most Western countries are. So you could previously hear arguments five years ago if you would debate prohibitionists that, well, it's not mutually exclusive. We can criminalize and we can offer a whole range of all these nice drug treatment programs and counseling programs and other things that you say are working in Portugal and yet everyone now recognizes that that's no longer true. 
Almost every state is suffocating from budgetary constraints due to their growing prison population. Everybody knows that we don't have both choices. We don't have the choice to both criminalize and at the same time offer meaningful drug programs. It's an either or proposition. And what Portugal found is that when they chose the or, when they stopped spending all their money putting their citizens into cages, they had ample money for education programs, for harm reduction programs, for counseling, for therapy, and for other things that let people who want to get rid of their addiction be able to do so meaningfully. The third reason that has caused such significant change in Portugal, and this too is a bit subtle, though I'd say equally as important as changing the relationship between the government and the population, is that the government has stopped treating addicts and users as criminals and started to treat people with addiction problems as what they are, which are people with health problems. I had this amazing debate um, last week at Brown University with the former drug czar under the Bush administration, John Walters, and he stood up and he began by saying that the reason he believes in criminalization is because addiction is this serious, severe health problem that once you start taking drugs, you can no longer voluntarily stop because your brain gets addicted physiologically and, and, and you no longer have any control over it. And Leaving aside the very dubious proposition that he was relying upon to make that case, if you assume that that's true, then what that means is that it's not just a non sequitur, but it's actually incredibly cruel to criminalize and put people in prison for what even prohibitionists are now arguing is a health problem. I mean, it's a basic precept of Western justice that we don't punish people with prison for things that they do that are the byproduct of disease, even if you murder somebody and then demonstrate that you did so because it was the byproduct of a mental illness, you will not go to a prison but to a mental health facility because we treat health problems with health solutions, not criminal solutions. And this is what Portugal has done more than anything else that has changed things for the better so radically. So what happens in Portugal if you are caught using drugs, and remember, it's not legal there, it's just decriminalized. They wanted to consider legalization but were barred by treaties from doing so. And as they'll tell you, look, we're Portugal, we're a small nation, and if you're a small nation, you actually have to abide by your treaty obligations, especially when you have the United States standing behind them demanding that you do so. They, they didn't legalize because they couldn't consider it, they just decriminalized. So what happens is if the police catch you using drugs, they will send you to what's called a dissuasion panel that is composed of three health professionals or people steeped in um, drug policy and, and drug counseling. And what it's designed to do every step of the way is to avoid the stigma of criminalization. So instead of being sent into a court as you are in the United States, even if you go to a drug court where someone is sitting on an elevated platform wearing a black robe that is the hallmark of, of condemnation and judgment, somebody who is educated and trained not in health and drug issues but in the law and punishment, instead of that, you go into a room where in, it's intended by design that you sit on the same level as this three-person panel. And you have all kinds of prerogatives. You can use, um, you can, you can insist upon nothing being sent to your home so your privacy is safeguarded. There is nothing compulsory about what happens except in rare cases, everything is optional. And the intent from the start is to diagnose the person, to determine whether they actually have a problem with drugs, if they have a problem with an addiction, with addiction, and if so, to encourage them, to guide them, to, to show them the way. 
to get counseling and to solve their addiction problems, not to force them to do so or to punish them from doing so. And it's the way in which this paradigm has been transformed from treating people as criminals into treating them as adults who have autonomy and who are offered help if they want it, that I think Portuguese officials will tell you and the evidence bears out is by far the most significant factor in why that policy has been such an astounding success. And the reason why this makes me so encouraged is because if you listen to prohibitionists, and this has been true forever, if they argue against legalization or decriminalization, they will almost always rely on pure speculative fear-mongering. The argument that if you decriminalize, you will have a massive explosion of, of usage, especially among the nation's youth who will learn that it's actually okay to do it. Um, and all kinds of other parades of horribles. And that was what happened in the debate in Portugal as well. They warned that Lisbon would become a drug haven for tourists and all the other scary slogans that we've heard for so long. And we finally now have a meaningful laboratory on a national level called Portugal, a country of 10 million people, where we can look and dispense with all the speculation and the fear-mongering, and we can know based on evidence exactly what will happen if we decriminalize. And what we know will happen is that none of those scary scenarios will actually come true, that instead, every problem that prohibitionists have identified as the reason we have to criminalize actually becomes much better when you remove this health problem from the inappropriate criminal realm and stop putting your citizens into cages for things that they don't belong in, in cages for doing. And, and that's why I think Portugal is such a powerful example. I think that's the reason why you see people more confident in arguing in favor of alternatives because now there's an ocean of empirical data behind them, a decade's worth of evidence about what really happens when we do these things, and, and Portugal is, is the country that provides that. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. Hi. The task I set for myself, <clears throat> uh, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of professors who just, they discover how horrible the drug war is and they write a book. Um, and the, so I, the task I set for myself was to try to change the debate from uh, should the drug war be ended to what should we replace it with? And so I was involved, well, I edited three works, but the, the big one, the first one, uh, called How to Legalize Drugs, uh, uh, 700 pages, um, was attempted to get the various points of view of the next step. Uh, the first half of it, the first 12 chapters, dealt with background issues, but the last 12 chapters gave a wide variety of alternative policies, and the idea was to have this on the shelf so that if and when uh, the United States, or for that matter any other country, wanted to do something, they would have the various positions here, they would have the logic behind the arguments, the points and counterpoints, so that they could look at their local conditions and weigh what would be the best policy. And uh, what I want to do today 
is to just discuss a couple of um, assumptions that have been underlying the war on drugs and uh, offer some alternatives and it sort of deals with this and in addition since I am a psychologist I, I want to talk a little bit about therapy too. So the first one is the notion that drugs cause crime, corruption and disease and if that's the problem then of course what you want to do is you want to attack drugs so you have a war on drugs and then when you have a war on drugs you find that the people who are selling them arm themselves and so then you have to arm yourself more and you have an escalation that takes place and uh, it seems as if the more you try to win this war the worse things get. So an alternative um, uh, assumption would be, uh, I think, and it's pretty obvious from what we've been hearing today, that drug prohibition causes a black market and that it's the black market that in turn causes the crime, corruption, and disease. And if that's the case, then what you want to attack is not drugs but the black market. And so if you want to attack the black market, then what you have to do is to create a legal market. And the, um, now, the, as soon as you talk about legalization, um, that, that raises ideas in people's head as if legalization is one thing, you know, that you could go to a candy store and buy what you want. But of course, um, there are both different uh, degrees of legalization and different kinds of legalization. Uh, if a particular substance is to be made legal, should it be as legal as tomatoes, uh, that is an agricultural product? Should it be as legal as aspirin, an over-the-counter medication? Should it be as legal as alcohol and tobacco, which are uh, restricted to adults and it's restricted as to uh, dosage level and quantities you can buy and where you can buy them and so on? Uh, or should it be as legal um, as an antibiotic for which you need a doctor's prescription? And so one of the things you have to consider is not just whether or not to legalize, but this sort of issue of degree, and that could be different for each substance. Then there's also, uh, well, Basically, there are two kinds of strategies of legalization, even though there's a wide variety uh, of approaches. One is what might be called the public health or the harm reduction or the cost-benefit approach. And this approach tends to be favored, and I would say when I came to the field, uh, this was my uh, view. Um, it, it tends to be favored by social scientists, by physicians, biomedical people. Uh, and others because the idea is to take the very best scientific knowledge uh, and that includes not just uh, biochemistry and, and that sort of thing but also uh, sociological and economic knowledge and so on and apply it for, to get a different strategy for each substance. The other approach which might be called a civil rights approach or a libertarian approach uh, or a, a rights-based approach um, takes the view that um, the 
what individuals do, and again, there are variations on this, what individuals do, as long as they don't do some direct harm to someone else, should be their own business. And this kind of approach, as you might imagine, tends to be favored more by uh, lawyers and uh, police chiefs and uh, people in law enforcement, judges, and so on, because the, um, the, uh, to make a specific law makes the rules of the game clear to everyone concerned. And so that, for example, one of the problems with the uh, cost-benefit approaches is that there's always new scientific knowledge that's, that's coming around. And that might change what the ideal strategy would be, but you can't change the law uh, every year or two. So that's, and, and that, it's that kind of argument that sort of persuaded me that a rights-based approach might be more effective. But at any rate, there, there are a lot of both of these, and there are critiques that each one has of the other. One critique, for example, of the um, uh, cost-benefit, the, the, uh, the public health approach is, is the fact that a given substance will get you high, is that a cost or a benefit? Well, uh, if you're taking the drug, uh, not only is it, a, is it a benefit, but it's the, the only benefit, the most important benefit. Uh, if without that benefit, you wouldn't do it. And for the people who want to prohibit it, not only is it a cost, it's the most important cost. And so if people can't even agree on that fundamental question as to whether getting high is a cost or a benefit, then that makes you uh, have pause about the, the uh, logical structure underlying those approaches. Okay. Um, another uh, assumption is that drugs hook victims. And... Uh, there are a couple of problems with this uh, assumption. Um, one of these uh, is that it doesn't talk about dosage level. Uh, any, any substance at a low enough dosage is no different from a placebo. And in fact, when supplies are poor in the black market, then, um, you know, people are essentially... Uh, getting high because they expect to get high. Um, and one of the things that the black market does is it leads to higher doses, which are, uh, have more potent effects and tend to create dependency more rapidly, be more difficult to stop using. And the reason for this is what's called the iron law of prohibition, and it's very straightforward, that because the substances are illegal, therefore smugglers want to pack as much of the substance into as small a volume as possible, and that's the definition of a high dosage. And because under the black market the prices are sky high, the users want to get the biggest bang for their buck that they can. And as a result, prohibition tends to push people to use higher doses so that under, uh, the United States was originally a country of beer drinkers, and under prohibition from drinking safe beer, which is low dosage alcohol, we became a country of drinkers of dangerous whiskey, uh, where people went blind and, and died from the various contaminants. And after prohibition ended, 
Over a period of time, we uh, went back down to becoming a, uh, a nation of, of beer drinkers. And similarly, we went from uh, smoked opium to injected heroin, from uh, low dosage coca in Coca-Cola or chewed coca in, and coca tea in the Andes uh, to cocaine to, to crack. And, um, oh wow, only five minutes. Um, okay, I will skip, well no, I've gotta say this one. Um, the, the, um, the notion that drugs hook victims uh, has been challenged, and, and I just want to read you the abstract from a major uh, study of drug usage uh, by Shedler and Block um, from the American Psychologist, the lead journal of the American Psychological Association. The relation between psychological characteristics and drug use was investigated in subjects studied longitudinally from preschool through age 18. Adolescents who had engaged in some drug experimentation, primarily with marijuana, were the, were the best adjusted in the sample. Adolescents who used drugs frequently were maladjusted, showing a distinct personality syndrome marked by interpersonal alienation, poor impulse control, and manifest emotional distress. Adolescents who by age 18 had never experimented with any drug were relatively anxious, emotionally constricted, and lacking in social skills. And this goes along with what we know about adolescent psychology. That is, in individualistic cultures like the United States, adolescence is a period where people learn to make choices for their future. They might get part-time jobs. They go to college where they can try courses in a variety of different areas so that they can find uh, what sort of work they want to do uh, to support themselves in their lives. Uh, similarly, there are some cultures where your parents or other individuals choose your spouse for you, but in our culture, uh, we have dating so that uh, people can get an experience of forming and uh, suffering the breakup of close attachments so that they can make an informed choice of a spouse. And in a similar way, in terms of uh, drug use, in uh, adolescence, they try uh, uh, marijuana, alcohol, whatever, to see what it's like. And um, let's see. Let me, let, me, let me run ahead to, to do your, the two-minute uh, version of psychotherapy. Let me, let me introduce you to that. Um, there's, there's a, uh, because there, this idea of forced therapy, you know, go to jail or go to therapy, really undermines what therapy is, is all about. Because in therapy, the, there's confidentiality. The therapist, the client has to be able to reveal uh, you know, shameful, illegal, whatever activity, so that the therapist can give the best candid advice. And it often might be something the person doesn't want to hear, but at least they can, they can discuss it in an atmosphere of confidentiality. Now we have this, uh, this kind of forced therapy, and um, you have this crazy situation, just as we have police officers doing drug education, you would never put teachers on the beat 
In, in a similar way, we have judges involved in therapy, and they really don't know what they're doing. Um, there's, here's a famous joke. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. And the, the point about this is that motivation is essential in therapy, that a, a fundamental question about the, the outcome of therapy is why is it that the results for therapy for depression and anxiety are so much better than the results for drug abuse, alcoholism, uh, cigarette smoking, overeating, um, uh, uh, people who <laughs> do too much sex in counterproductive ways and, and so on. And the answer is that depression and anxiety are unpleasant and therefore people are motivated to cooperate with a therapist in order to change whereas getting high or having sex or uh, eating too much is pleasurable and therefore even though the person may understand that they are suffering bad long-term consequences as the result of short-term pleasure, and by the way, reinforcement is something evolutionarily that tends to be short-term. That's one of the problems built into this system. Therefore, you need cooperation. So when you have someone say, help me, uh, then the therapist has a basis to, to work with. But when you have someone who is forced into therapy, then you've got uh, an absurd situation. First of all, there are the people who don't have a problem using drugs, but they got caught. So then they're told you can go to jail or you can go to therapy, and you, they go to therapy, and then therapy is a charade. They have to pretend to have a problem. They have to pretend to be helped. If they don't cooperate, um, ordinarily, that's a problem for the therapist, but in this case, the therapist tells the judge they're not cooperating, they go to jail. So it, it really undermines what therapy is all about. It, it's up? Uh, okay, so, um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll just end by saying uh, instead of forced therapy for people who don't want it, voluntary therapy for people who do want it will get much better results. Okay, thank you very much, David. Um, so I apologize to the uh, guests from outside the United States because I am going to speak in about a New York minute here because um, I got a lot to say. And so just hang on for the ride here. Um, I run the Drug Policy Alliance. We're the leading organization in the country, as David said, promoting alternatives to the war on drugs. We do two things. We pursue a long-term vision of fundamentally transforming the way we deal with drugs in our society, in the U.S. and around the world, but we put most of our resources into the day-by-day -day incremental reforms to try to roll back the war on drugs and move in the direction of more long-term reform. We try to ensure that every incremental step we take is driven by a strategy about longer-term ultimate reform to avoid making those two steps forward, three steps back sorts of mistakes, one example being the drug courts, which Jeff uh, Fish just implied are not a constructive way forward. One way to think about this is to imagine drug policies, the array of options, as arrayed along a spectrum. At one end, 
the most punitive, lock them up, cut off their heads, drug test them without cause societies, Singapore, Malaysia, Korea, good parts of America. At the other end, the cigarette policy of the 1950s, the no controls whatsoever, uh, Milton Friedman's wet dream, right? That's the spectrum. What we're essentially trying to do is to move the policies and the debate as far as possible down this spectrum so that we can get over here into this territory. I would define as our objective is not so much as we want to legalize everything and that's it, boom. Although many of the supporters of Drug Policy Alliance do believe that, and there are various days when I and many others who work at DPA believe that. But what our objective is, is to reduce the role of criminalization and the criminal justice system in drug control to the maximum extent consistent with public safety and health. To reduce the role of criminalization, the criminal justice system in drug control to the maximum extent consistent with public safety and health. To my mind, if that's our objective, the ultimate drug policy, the best drug policy, is going to lie someplace between the free market scenario and the one which falls short of legalization, but which one might describe as the public health-driven, decriminalized, but still essentially prohibitionist scenario. That that's where the best balance is going to be, the one that most reduces the harms of drug prohibition and the harms of drugs, that aims to do, reduce both those harms. It's down here. Our objective, long-term objective, is to move the policy of the debate over there and to move the policy over there. I look forward to the day when the debates between libertarian legalizers and harm reductionists are the most consequential debates happening about drug policy in America and the world, because that will be the definition of success. Up to that point, those debates are very interesting, very engaging, let's have them, but what's most important is political unity to move things down from where they are over here right now down to over here, okay? So, what's going on today? Well, first, Obama. Obama. You know, he wasn't so bad from a drug policy perspective in his first year. When he was running for office, he made three campaign commitments. He said he was going to get rid of those crack powder mandatory minimum drug laws, which are so racially disproportionate and unjust. He said he was going to allow federal funding for needle exchange programs, I mean, only being 25 years after almost every other civilized society had done it. And he said he was going to get the federal government not interfering in medical marijuana in the states that had made it legal. And within the first 12 months, somewhat to my surprise, Basically, he didn't lead on the needle exchange thing, but he let the Democrats in the House do it, and it happened. And then on the rolling, getting rid of the crack powder ones, they allied with us reformers, and they pushed for major reform in that area, and they did it in good faith, and they got a significant victory in terms of reducing it. Not for this 100 to 1 disparity to 1 to 1, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, but something that was more equitable, more just, more based on science. And then thirdly, on medical marijuana, his Justice Department put out a statement in mid-2009 basically saying that it should not be a priority of federal law enforcement to go after medical marijuana in the states that had made it legal if state authorities were okay with it. I was surprised. Relatively good on all three commitments, not bad at all. 
That last step, by the way, opened up huge running room. State legislatures say, oh, the feds are sending us a signal now. We can begin to legalize medical marijuana and responsibly regulate this stuff. You know, dispensaries started sprouting in Colorado and in, in Montana. States began, who had already legalized medical marijuana begin to issue responsible regulatory legislation. That happened in, for example, Colorado, which has one of the significant for-profit models of medical marijuana. So there was a real sense of forward movement. But I have to tell you, for the last two years, he has not delivered. He has not delivered, and increasingly it is impossible to tell his drug policies apart from those of his predecessors under the Bush and the Clinton administrations. On medical marijuana, which I'll get into in a minute, they rolled back, and now you see federal prosecutors running rampant around, around on, on this medical marijuana thing. You have the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms basically saying that anybody with a medical marijuana you know, ID card, a recommendation from a doctor, of which there are now between three-quarter of a million and a million legal patients around the United States, that they they are not allowed to own a gun, and a licensed gun owner cannot sell to them. And most of the states which have legalized medical marijuana are gun-friendly states. I mean, Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Vermont. Crazy. On what, as if there's any evidence that smoking marijuana for medical purposes is associated with reckless gun behavior? I mean, there's no policy thinking behind it either, and it's politically foolish. He has the IRS telling legal medical marijuana dispensaries playing by all the rules that they cannot deduct the same business expenses as others. He has federal prosecutors that are basically sending forfeiture orders to property owners who rent to medical marijuana dispensaries, you know, saying, you better stop or we're going to arrest you and take away your property. He has other federal prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, sending letters to governors and state officials saying, you better not pass their regulatory legislation because it's all illegal under federal law. He's got the U.S. attorney in San Diego saying, I want to test the First Amendment. I want to go after those newspapers that are running ads for medical marijuana. Basically what's happening is that federal prosecutors and federal law enforcement are running out of control in this country today. The arrogance of prosecutors in America, the federal and the state and local level, is one of the fundamental things driving the war on drugs and the problems of overcriminalization and overincarceration in America. There's an arrogance to that power, and there is no check on them. Combine that, combine that with a drug war bureaucracy that goes back 40 years, that has become very accustomed to never being challenged or questioned, and what you have is a system that, absent strong leadership, is not going to change. In those first few months of Obama, there was that push. But at that point, now the drugs are appointing to Vice President Biden. Biden, except for being good on crack powder reform, is essentially more or less your standard drug warrior. The drugs are Gil Kurlikowski, nice guy, former police chief of Seattle, which, you know, they do run the biggest annual marijuana hemp fest in the world with nobody getting arrested, you would think he would know better. He actually went up to Vancouver before he became drug czar as police chief and wrote a very nice report on the, uh, the safe injection sites to reduce AIDS and overdoses up there. But he gets in, he gets a lot of good press for saying we don't have a drug war anymore. In fact, all he said was the same thing that every drug czar since Lee Brown in the early years of Clinton had said, right? And quite frankly, I can't tell him apart from John Walters and Barry McCaffrey. He surrounded himself with the same people who gave the bad advice to the former administrations. He, Obama appointed as head of the DEA the same person who, who Bush had appointed, Michelle, ba not Bachman, Michelle Leanhart, I could tell, whatever. I mean, you know, who has used her, her discretionary authority basically to, uh, to basically say that marijuana should still be a Schedule I drug with no accepted medical value and a great potential for abuse. I mean, what a mockery. What a joke. 
I don't think that this is being driven by politics in the White House. And there's enough evidence out there to suggest that Obama and his top political people are not driving this. What they are doing is not a strategic strategy to try to crack down on medical marijuana or other elements of this thing. I think what's basically going on is that the federal drug bureaucracy and prosecutors have just been let, let, let loose to run. And that what's part of our job, at least for those of us who can try to influence the Obama administration, is to say, wait a second, wake up, look what people are doing in your name. And meanwhile, the kind of, you know, when the, when the Global Commission came out with that very powerful and intellectually rigorous report last June, and what did the drugs are have to say? Nothing. Nothing. Obama, in an off moment, acknowledges that marijuana legalization or legalization more broadly is a legitimate subject for debate, but nothing from his senior administration officials are mirroring that. People in National Institute on Drug Abuse pretending that they're interested in real research or research on medical marijuana and nothing happening, blocking it across the board. So I have to say my disappointment with the Obama administration is very significant right now. I hope that as he hits the campaign trail and has to deal with people around the country who care a lot about this issue and as they wake up and see that alienating young people doesn't make sense, then maybe they'll begin to turn around and take some more control. Now, having blasted Obama, you know who's even worse? It's the Republicans. The Republicans and, quite frankly, most of the conservatives. I mean, I loved it when Milton Friedman and William Buckley were right up there. You know, I love George Schultz. He's fantastic, you know. And I got to say, there are people like Grover Norquist and David Keene and, of course, Gary Johnson, the former governor of New Mexico, and a few other brave souls around the country who are standing up. But you now have the House Judiciary Committee being run by Congressman Lamar Smith from Texas. I mean, it's like the throwback to the drug war hysteria of the late 80s, early 90s. He introduced a bill that would have resulted in two people sitting over lunch today saying, hey, we're going to Amsterdam next week, let's meet at a coffee shop and smoke a joint, being subject to violating a federal conspiracy law. You know, there's a new synthetic marijuana. There's a process for dealing with this stuff. They hold a hearing. Let's criminalize it, no, regardless of the consequences. The same idiocy we saw with the criminalization of the crack penalties and cocaine penalties in the 80s, the things that filled our prisons to unprecedented proportions with no consideration of public safety, health, or fiscal responsibility. There does need to be movement among conservatives, and God knows we need people stepping out. You know, to the extent that Cato, I have to say, it's what I love about Cato. Because the way Cato, you know, in Washington, D.C., where you, it's so notorious here for you guys put on intellectual blinders and you don't even know it being in the beltway, right? But to have an organization that's putting the radical arguments there for legalization and putting in the face of people in Washington, D.C., and generating those sorts of important conflicts over policy and principle among conservatives is an incredibly valuable role. I, who have, you know, have links across the board but are stronger on the left and the Democratic side, am doing everything I can. But we need the help on the side of conservatives and Republicans as well. More new leadership. Schultz is fantastic. He's wonderful. He's a hero of mine, but he's 90. Right. Paul Volcker, fantastic, a leader, but he's 83 or 4 or something. And they got a lot of energy and let him live to be 120, but still we need new people stepping out. Now, the thing that I feel most optimistic about is what's going on with marijuana. It's not just that medical marijuana has 70% support across the country. Right? It's not just that you have 16 states that have legalized medical marijuana and Washington, D.C., and others are getting closer and closer to doing so. But the transformation of public opinion on marijuana legalization? Look at that annual Gallup poll. You know, when they started asking that question, should marijuana use be legal back in 1970, I think 16% said yes, right? By, nine, by 2005, it had gone up to 36% were in favor of legalizing marijuana use. That was the highest ever. And 60% were opposed. Last month, same question, same poll. 
that 36% in favor had become 50% in favor. The 60% against had become 46% against. 14% jumped this way, 14% declined that way. 28-point shift in public opinion. That is more rapid than the shift around gay marriage. What's remarkable, of course, is that when you see more and more politicians, especially Democrats, coming out for gay marriage, but somehow we can't see that movement on the marijuana issue, as if this third rail still cannot be touched. You know, California, when they had that Prop 19 last year, it got 46.5% of the vote with almost no money behind it. While, you know, the two candidates for uh, Carly Fiorina and Meg, Meg Whitman spent like a gazillion dollars between the two of them, and Prop 19 to legalize marijuana vastly outpolled either two of them. I don't think we're going to see another initiative in California to legalize marijuana this year. Maybe in 2016. The smart money is saying we, California needs to get its stuff in order around medical marijuana. But look to Colorado, look to Washington State, where initiatives may be on the ballot to legalize marijuana use, and where they're increasingly drafted in sophisticated ways, trying to protect medical marijuana, trying to understand where public opinion is at. They're both going to be uphill battles. In both states, you have a little more than 50% saying they're in favor, a little more than 40% against, which is not normally enough to feel confident about victory, but they have a shot. Then you look at the demographic trends. A majority of people between the ages of 18 and 65, not 18 and 29, not 18 and 39, but 18 and 65 now support legalizing marijuana use. But only one-third of people over the age of 65 are in favor. You know, demographic trends, sad to say, but demographic trends, happy to say, are in our favor. You know, yes, some people as they get older will become conservative when they have kids. As we all know, it appears that an essential definition of parenthood is hypocrisy. But nonetheless, the drop-off is not going to be as great. So we're seeing, ironically, that as America globally has led the war on drugs, as we have established unprecedented records of incarceration, ones that make the rates of incarceration, especially with black men, look, look astronomical compared to apartheid South Africa or even the Soviet gulags, right? That we've promoted our policies globally in incredibly offensive and, and destructive ways, that when it comes to marijuana, not the federal government, but the American people, and state governments appear to, providing, to appear to be providing a form of leadership, of global leadership, that is essentially transformative, not just in this country, but potentially around the world. You know, there are now more legal medical marijuana dispensaries in America than there are coffee shops in the Netherlands, right? What Obama needs to do, and this is the thing I think he can do, is to step up and say that he supports and will respect the responsible regulation of medical marijuana by state governments, and that he will encourage federal authorities to respect it as well. That's the one politically possible step he can do, and he must do. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, most words in 16 minutes, Ethan Nadelman. All right, we're going to uh, take questions for a few minutes here, so please, right back there. Uh, we have a microphone coming, is that right? Right there. Okay, you. And then Terry Michael across the way. Well, I'm, my first question is, I, one thing I wasn't too clear on, you were saying that uh, Portugal has decriminalized it, but they put, the, they put the people in front of a panel. I mean, are they taken into custody and put in front of a panel? How? Are they taken into custody and put in front of a panel? How does that work exactly? That's right. So the nature of decriminalization is that it's still prohibited under the law. It's just removed from the criminal scheme. So the law, it's still illegal 
to use those substances. It's just not criminal any longer. So if the police see you doing it um, or learn that you've done it, they will issue you a citation that then compels your appearance in front of this panel. I mean, what happened really in reality was that Portugal wanted to go much further, but was sort of constrained by the prevailing conventions and treaties and orthodoxies and the like. That was as far as they could go. But obviously, for somebody who's cited, it's a huge difference not to end up in handcuffs in prison. Okay, Becky, right behind you, Terry Michael. Uh, thank you, and thank you for this program. Um, I want to ask a question about the uh, separation of marijuana from legalization of other drugs. The attitude has sort of been, by the way, I'm a former press secretary for the DNC, and Ethan, the, the Democratic Party is worse than the Republican Party on this. The um, legalization of marijuana versus other forms of drugs. The attitude has been, well, we'll get foot in door with medical, then we'll have legalization of marijuana, and then that will lead to legalization of other drugs. I really think not. I think the neo-prohibitionist power structure is going to say, you got your damn marijuana, now shut up. And then we still have the black markets and the violence and the murder. Does it really make sense to divide this question and not make an honest argument for legalization for everything all at once? Uh. Yeah, uh, it, it makes sense to make an honest and intellectually coherent argument for legalization of all at once. Definitely does that. But in the real political world, when you now have 50% of American people saying legalize marijuana use and maybe 14% saying legalize more broadly, it depends upon the poll and how you ask the question, and when there's not been that much movement on the broader legalization thing, that A, when the, to do what's possible now and winning marijuana legalization would be a huge step forward. Marijuana accounts for half the arrests in, in uh, half the drug arrests in the country. Not half the incarcerations, drug incarcerations, but half the arrests. It probably, you know, the second thing is, and my former colleague, uh, Lynn Zimmer, you know, brilliantly used to make this argument. She says, in some respects, the war on marijuana subsidizes, you know, uh, essentially the broader war on drugs. It's the one that brings the war on drugs home to the ordinary American. And that you take away that, the whole drug testing industry falls apart. Most of the policing fall apart. Marijuana is being used by tens of millions of people. The total number of Americans using heroin, cocaine, and the other drugs with any regularity is only a few million people. Thirdly, if you look in Europe, for example, where the Netherlands, other countries, especially Netherlands, they move forward on decriminalization, legalization, the retail but not wholesale side of marijuana. At the same time, they were moving forward with a sort of harm reduction decriminalization approach to some extent with the other drugs. And they significantly minimized some of the harms of drug prohibition to a much greater extent than the United States did. The other thing is the best way to deal with a substantial market, at least for heroin and possibly for the stimulant drugs, is take what the Swiss pioneered in 1992 with heroin maintenance, and which you now see in Denmark and Germany and, and, and uh, the Netherlands and Canada tried it, Spain, which is essentially to allow heroin addicts who can't quit through drug-free or methadone to come to a clinic and get pharmaceutical heroin from a legal source. To take that program and scale it up dramatically so that you could actually absorb a significant sh share of the market for illegal heroin and maybe other drugs by providing it legally through legal channels, that would be an effective parallel strategy with respect to the other drugs. It falls short of full legalization, but it might have a, make a significant dent in the problems that we're addressing today. In the back. You, stand up. Howard Woldridge, a co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Question for Dr. Fish on addiction. I've been at this for 14 years, and it's always, as, as uh, Car uh, Tucker Carlson said, won't use go up. 
if we legalize, uh, regulate these particular drugs. I've always said, you tell me differently, is there any research other than the Zogby poll in 2007 that said if heroin, cocaine, amphetamines were legal, six-tenths of one percent would actually try it for the first time. Is there any research ever been done or being done or being projected in the future to give us in reform some ammunition to say the best scientific research, minds, et cetera, or opinion is that very few people will put a needle in their arm the next day or start uh, snorting cocaine? You know, that's true. Um, I guess that the, the, the key thing here is that the concept of addiction isn't really a scientific concept. That each of these substances is different, it has different effects. Um, the, the use, for example, of, um, and by the way, there's no big difference between the ones that are illegal and the ones that are legal. Um, use of nicotine and of opiates. Uh, it creates very rapid, um, uh, uh, what would you call it? I don't want to use the word addiction, but uh, problem usage. Uh, alcohol takes much longer, but it's harder to stop. Um, marijuana can't really kill you, whereas you can get an overdose of uh, heroin fairly easily that will cure you, that will kill you, and that. Um, the, the concept of addiction is really more a religious concept uh, coming out of uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and um, uh, various uh, religious organizations and, and so on. And so the, the notion that you can just lump these things all together, it reminds me, for example, of the, the English concept of nuts. You know, we have, in, in Portuguese, they have uh, all these, they have peanuts and almonds and Brazil nuts, it's called castanha de pará, and, and so on. But the, there isn't a nuts. It's, you know, we, we lump them together in English. And I think that, that addiction is like that. And, and so uh, to, the whole idea that you would just say uh, um, this is the problem with addiction or they'll use more is, is, is based on a, a concept that isn't really solid. Okay, back there in the corner and then right here. Paula Gordon, um, Gordon, public, uh, Gordon, uh, drugabuseprevention.com. Uh, last week I heard, um, set in on a webinar on designer drugs. It was absolutely appalling. It, and it, it, it just flies in the face of what you're saying about what would happen if we legalize drugs. Uh, when Ma, um, Miley Cyrus used sa salvia, the increase of hits on the internet went up 400%. You can find anything you want out about all of these drugs, and they're increasing, their use is increasing exponentially. Are we in our right mind to do anything that would encourage the expanded use of drugs and to, to, to continue to uh, promulgate this notion that marijuana is harmless, or things like marijuana are harmless. Okay. Ethan? Yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> Let's be clear. I'm not saying marijuana is harmless. Marijuana is a drug. 
Uh, people can become addicted to it. Nobody wants their teenage kids waking and baking and going to school. Uh, you know, let's be clear. So we're nobody's saying marijuana is harmless, right? No drug is harmless, and fairly, most activities ultimately aren't. But as drugs go, marijuana is probably less harmless, less harmful than virtually any of the others. It's never been associated with an overdose fatality. It's not particularly associated with with other violent behavior. You know, in terms of driving on the roads, you shouldn't smoke marijuana and drive. But it's nothing like alcohol in that regard. And then you have to consider on the other side first the utter failure of marijuana prohibition. I mean, for the last 30 years, you know, 80% of all high school seniors say it's easier to get marijuana. It's easy to get marijuana. Three national surveys in which high school seniors say it's easier to buy marijuana than to buy alcohol. If ever there's been an indictment in terms of the failure of marijuana prohibition, that's got to be it. Meanwhile, the negative consequences of marijuana prohibition, 800,000 arrests a year, the incredible racial disproportionality that, that, that Harry Levine talked about, people getting criminal records for life. So what I'm interested in is a balanced policy with respect to regulating and controlling drugs in our society. The failure of prohibition is evident. Is a legal regulatory strategy risky? Yes. But almost certainly, the benefits will be greater and the harms less than the current policy. Yeah. Let me, let me just also add that if you, if you think about, for example, what happened with the legalization of pornography in Scandinavia, there was initially a, a great interest, and then it, it died out. It was available everywhere. And the fact that there's much lower marijuana usage in the Netherlands than there is here in the United States, I think, makes the point about um, uh, the counterproductive nature of our current policy. Okay, right here. Yes. My name is Steve Hankin. I'm not affiliated with anything. I'm just retired. Oh, like that? Okay. Um, you were giving the, uh, Mr. Greenwald, you were giving the reasons why uh, there was a drop in, a drop in the usage of, uh, in Portugal, and you get, went through a number of reasons. And I wanted to ask if you uh, considered that perhaps there's another reason. Um, adolescents love risk. I mean, I think it's, it's a human, human trait when you're at least a male adolescent that you like risky activities. Once, when alcohol was, is illegal, or any drug that's illegal when you're ad an adolescent, it becomes that much more attractive. So I think if you make it legal, um, I think adolescents may be less interested in it. I'm not saying they're not interested, but they'll be a lot less interested. At least that's what I think. What do you think of that theory? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably should defer to, to Professor Fish because it's a psychological question that I think is fascinating. But there, there, I will say that there, there is this sense that when you make something off limits and prohibit it, it increases the glamour of it for exactly the reason that you just said, especially among the demographic groups about which drug policymakers care the most. Um, so before asking Professor Fish to comment, I'm interested to hear what he has to say on that question. I will just observe again the empirical uh, result, um, and, it, and it goes back to the question that we just had as well, that in Portugal, when they removed the criminal sanction, um, and I don't want to exaggerate this, it isn't that usage collapsed in every demographic realm, it increased much less than it was increasing before and relative to other European countries, but in the key demographic groups, such as these adolescent groups, pre-adolescent groups, um, that are considered most significant for future 
uh, development, usage really did decrease um, in an absolute sense, um, just on pure numbers. And I think certainly the psychological aspect of it plays a part. I think it's also the fact that um, everything is just healthier um, in terms of how these topics are communicated to youth, to adolescents, to adults, um, when it's removed from the threat of criminal sanction. Yeah, and, and also I think you're right. They, they make it boring. If you, if you look again at the Netherlands, they have this comprehensive program of health education. Um, and uh, so they have lower rates of abortions, lower rates of teen pregnancies, lower rates of um, uh, marijuana usage. Uh, you know, they learn all about the stuff and it's available and uh, it's, you know, they get lectured on it and, uh, and it just is, it's not that big a deal. Okay, last question right here. My name is Aaron Stevenson. I'm actually a public school teacher. Hold it. Close. It's close. Uh, my name is Aaron Stevenson. I'm a public school teacher. And uh, Mr. Ornadelman hit on this issue a little bit, but I'm curious about Mr. Greenwald's take. Um, this morning on the first panel, um, Mario Grady of the Wall Street Journal stated that this issue is a conservative issue. Other people think it's a democratic issue. And so my first question is, is it healthy to compartmentalize this issue into political ideologies? Does that actually advance our agenda? Question number two, and Mr. Nadelman again hit on this, um, Republicans and Democrats, when they're campaigning, they're polarizing on the issues. But as Mr. Greenwald has written time and time again on his blog, they eventually amalgamate and they turn into, in essence, one and the same party. And so will one of these parties or the same party eventually have the courage to address this issue? Or eventually, is there going to need to be a third party emergence? Perhaps a libertarian party, something along those lines. Thank you. All right. That's a good question. I'll just address the political aspect of it, which is um, obviously, if you believe in reform, you want to see the issue avoid being pigeonholed as one um, ideological prong of dogma or the other, because that's when it becomes. Um, just subject to the partisan wars, and it just goes back and forth without any constructive solution. So I, I, I'm surprised to hear somebody um, stand up and say I'm for reform, but I want it to be clear that this is a conservative issue. Um, I actually think it's not the case. Um, there's been lots of people from across the political spectrum who advocate for reform, and one source of frustration for me is that it's not higher on the agenda of, um, of, of progressive interest because it really is the policy that more than any other results in the unjust incarceration of huge numbers of um, people in, in communities of color and the poor um, who are supposed to be as people who are marginalized, the people whom progressives and people on the left um, are standing up for and advocating for. Um, and yet the indifference towards the drug war in light of that proclaimed professed interest or even support for it um, is really quite frustrating. But I do think that, that the solution lies with um, making this so that it's not an ideological cause. Um, and, and as far as the question of envisioning one of the two parties, um, the problem, you know, Ethan was saying, and it's true that there's been encouraging developments in public opinion, but often what happens is public opinion doesn't really matter as much as whether there's a, a powerful lobby behind one position. Um, and right now there is no really powerful lobby behind 
um, reform and behind legalization. I think the, the encouraging development, the way that that can happen is if the youth of the United States who do care about this issue more than other, any other start to politically organize around it. And I think that's what can then become the powerful lobby that balances it out and, and makes the political class follow public opinion in a way that they're not now. Yeah, and if I could just make a distinction, I would say that on the right, that the social conservatives outweigh, outnumber the libertarians, and on the left, what you might call the social liberals outweigh the, or are more numerous than the civil liberties liberals. The, uh, the social liberals would be the ones who want to protect women and children from drugs, as opposed to, let's say, the social conservatives who want to punish evil people for using the drugs. But basically, it's a, uh, an un, not often recognized uh, confluence of interest between uh, the, the social conservatives and the social liberals. And let me just uh, say this. You know, I mean, one of the things I love about my job is building these left-right coalitions. And I actually think that the values we're standing for in terms of freedom, responsibility, and compassion cut across the political spectrum. I think that people can embrace drug policy reform in a very significant way across the spectrum, and to the extent that they think it's inconsistent with their principles, it's oftentimes grounded, the inconsistency is grounded in an ignorance about the reality of drugs or ignorance about the nature of what the state is doing in this area. So of course to move this thing forward, it has to be across the spectrum. I think that sometimes I'm frustrated because you're much more likely to see Democrats and liberals stepping out in favor than Republicans, but among the few Republicans or conservatives who do step out, it's oftentimes with a boldness of intellect and principle that's lacking on the left. I think what's frustrating now is just wanting to see more of this bubbling out. The disparity between what people say privately and what they're willing to say publicly is getting greater and greater and greater, and it feels like a balloon that's getting to the point of being ready to pop. Thank you, Ethan Nadelman, Jefferson Fish, Glenn Greenwald.